Well, guys, welcome to the Sunday or Saturday evening, uh, Friday evening, Friday evening talk. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about um, the word concentration. Now, the first thing that I can say about concentration is, is that I learned from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's own lips, sitting on the floor in front of his big chair, don't trust the translations. Okay. That's a very, very rare thing to have heard. Don't trust the translations. Go do your own. Right? And yet most of the people who get introduced to Buddhism, including people who are in it for years, never come across that. What instead they do is they read what's there and they assume that because it's the suttas, that this is the teaching of the Buddha. Right. And the problem is, is that there have been fingers all over the teachings of the Buddha for the past 2500 years. It's about it's it's kind of like going to the junkyard and finding a fairly um, well preserved wreck that is about to be crushed and taking that car and put it back into its original condition. Not an easy thing to do. And that that's in fact what uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was doing in Thailand for a number of years is trying to un, uh, um, how to say it, to set right that which had been tipped over, over the many, many centuries, that the Buddhist countries, in fact, are uh, susceptible uh, to bad translations. That's, in fact, what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was making such a stir about in the 1940s, was the fact that the uh, Thai translations were not very good. And he was doing, he did a lot of his own. I don't think that he would go so far as to do the entire Tripitaka because most of the Tripitaka is not worth translating in any language. In fact, uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Das has actually said you can take the entire Abhidhamma, which is, you know, like a third of the whole set, and throw it with the uh, Vasudhimaga into the ocean. So, um, because of all of this extra stuff, and also because we have to understand that the original translators who had the toughest job of all, they did what they could do with um, Indo-European language skills, but they did not very well consult the Sri Lankan monks who already had good translations, or fairly good. And so the English translation winds up being the very worst. And when I say translation, I actually mean it that way, though we can say technically each translator um, uh, does his own translation. But they all use the same lexicons that were done originally. And so Samati in the um, lexicon or in the Pali English dictionaries is wrong. So when your dictionaries are wrong, what hope do we have? Well, we have the possibility of listening to those who actually have figured out the Dhamma and, and picked their way through it. 
and get good explanations of why the words are translated incorrectly so that we can understand how to practice correctly. Now, let's, use, let's look at the word first, um, would be the word uh, concentration, as opposed to um, the word in the Pali that it comes from, which is the word samati. Now, the word trend, uh, concentration actually um, has many, many different uses and focuses. This is possibly part of the problem is, is that it doesn't have just one translation. That's exactly the problem with the word self in the sense of no self or anatta and any of that kind of stuff is, is that the word self in English language has many, many different kinds of translations with very subtleties and that uh, it was never pointed to that way um, in the first place. Um, that in fact, we uh, the way that Anatta was written, and I'll stop just a moment to see to show you what I'm uh, talking about. The word Anatta um, has to do with um, an Atta or a permanent self or a permanency. That this is what it had to do with. That in fact, this is why the Buddha was so strong on Anicca. Anicca vata sankara. Okay, everything is changing. So that's part of the issue right there with the word self is just because the self is constantly changing and yet everybody has the delusion that I am who I am. I'm the same person that I was when I was in diapers three years old. I remember some of that stuff. I'm certainly the same kid that I was in the first grade because I remember a lot of that. And I'm certainly the tit, uh, uh, the the ten year old that was chased down the street for making racial remarks in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, I'm that same guy. Is the kind of mentality that we have. Hello, Scott. Hello. We're talking about concentration again. <laughs> okay. So uh, that whole idea then is, is that. Um, the word anatta is wrongly translated as no self, that a better translation would be no soul, because we in English, uh, especially with religious bent, have the idea that the soul is permanent, everlasting, that it will survive death. And this is the mentality that the people in the time of the Buddha had was because they were believing the Brahmins. Because the Brahmins had this idea of reincarnation. And so the Buddha was saying, no, there is nothing so strong and permanent to last century after century. So that 300 years from now, the common machine is going to dig you up just to kick your ass. No, the ass kicking was done when you still had an ass. So. There's many, many translation issues uh, and that uh, concentration is the one that prevents us from actually practicing correctly. All right, then in fact, the word samati means exactly the opposite of some of the translations of the word concentration. So let's look at some of the words, some of the uses of the word concentration. We can concentrate something 
in the sense of um, putting it under pressure and making it smaller. Right? That whenever you see them making uh, big artwork out of cement, that they have it semi-dry, but what do they do? They pound it on top to get that brick down to shape. So they actually concentrate the cement. You can see that with, with road graders, all kinds of equipment is, is to make something smaller by pounding on it. That's one reason that's one use of the word concentration. Is that your intention of the use of concentration in the Buddhist text to pound on something to make it smaller? I don't think so. Lauren, what do you think? Do you think that that's what it means? That you're supposed to sit here in meditation hall and pound on yourself until you make yourself smaller? What is the self in that regard anyway? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right. So let's look at another use of the word concentration. And that is what first graders do when they're told to do their homework and they want to fidget and play. And the teacher or the mommy will say to concentrate. All right. What do we mean by concentration when a human does it? That means that we fur our brows and look like we're working really, really hard. So that our teacher will think that we're actually doing our homework when in fact we're just concentrating. We're, you know, focusing the eyes and getting down and, and, and looking like this. So this is another kind of concentration. All right. Another kind of concentration would be, for instance, writing a book or writing code. That we're, that we're stuck in that code. We're really, really into it to the point that the house could be on fire and we don't even know it. Or daddy could walk into the room and we don't even know he's there or we don't care he's there because we're concentrating on um, our, our code. In fact, I've, this is a whole point about a, a student. Here's, here's an example of that, that in fact, the same guy at the age of seven, he's sitting there in front of his computer at night, late at night, and he hears his dad walking down the hall. And he jumps up immediately, turns the light off, uh, turns his screen off and jumps into bed just as the fact that the dad is coming into the room. So the dad misses the fact that the kid was there working on his computer, but he heard his dad walking down the hall. And so he jumped into action. Fast forward a few years later and that same boy is sitting in front of that same computer, but now he's writing code and dad walks down the hall, opens the door, says good night to his son, closes the door in anger because the son is not paying attention to him because why? Because the son is concentrating. Right. He's concentrating on the code that he's writing and he missed the fact that his dad, I mean, years ago, his dad walked down the hall and he knows it. Now the dad walks down the hall and he's not paying any attention to it at all because he's concentrating on something else. So imagine that you had a, um, a whack-a-mole 
You've seen that game. They had them in the arcades or uh, even in the uh, front of the grocery stores years ago. And it had 16 holes and 16 dildos would pop up as they pleased. And your job is to whack it, whack that mole back into the hole. Well, the little kid is new to that. And so somebody says, well, you got to concentrate on that hole right there. If any moles come out of that hole, you got to hit them. And there that kid is able to hit that one, but he's missing 15 others because he's concentrating on just one hole. Okay, so what we're beginning to look at is, is that most of the concentration terms that we're using don't actually fit what we're practicing in meditation at all. There is another word, another way of using the word concentration. But it doesn't even fit very well in the normal use of the word concentration, but you can see how it fits. And concentration in the sense of remembering to do something. Remembering to do something over and over and over and over, just like a musician has to concentrate on the music because he's got to stay with it. He's got to stay there. Okay, over and over and over and over and over and over again, we keep coming back. Now that's beginning to be something that we can do. In other words, when you use the word concentration, we can use it for repetition and find value in the word. When it's done over and over and over and over again, but that use of the word concentration is not the most common usage of the word concentration. So if we use that word, then we can find some value in it. The next word then we can look at is the word samati, which is the word the word concentration comes from. So what the word samati actually means and is well translated means bringing the constituent components together to make something new. Now, what we actually mean in that regard is very, very much like um, uh, general systems theory. Does anybody here know uh, general systems theory? It's a part of science and mathematics and engineering. We use these things, okay? General systems theory has um, several points to it. One is, is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Oh, somebody's got their microphone on and it's uh, the birds are, are quacking. Maybe it's you, Daniel. Turn that off. Okay, so let's go now to look at the, the point is, is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. What is that greaterness? Often it's usability. All right, let's put it this way. How about a basketball that has no air? or a little bit of air, no, not much, let us say an atmosphere. Now, let's add air to it so that you have a flat basketball plus air, and now you have a basketball that will bounce. Before, without the air, it won't bounce. So we can say that we have to make the, the ball samati by adding air to it so that it will perform a function. The next one would be, a, 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 let us use the bicycle. 
you got the bicycle wheels over there. You've got the pedals over there. You've got the handlebar six weeks, six miles from here, et cetera. Your bicycle is just all over the place. It's not together. Is that bicycle usable? Can you ride on that bicycle? No, you can't use it, right? Because the, the, uh, uh, the constituent components are not gathered together in its correct form. When you bring all of the features and the forms of the um, uh, and all of the parts and constituent components of the bicycle together in their proper uh, place and get it correct, then you can ride the bicycle. Right, so now we're talking about general systems theory and the whole idea is, is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Scott, you got your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, so going along with the trend of uh, samadhi as a gathering of parts to perform a function, uh, what is the function of samadhi? Ah, well, we can go for that too. In fact, you're just a bit ahead of me. So let's look at general systems theory a little bit more because it um, there are two different kinds of systems, an open system and a closed system. A closed system will die. But an open system will survive. An example of that is, is that the planet Earth needs to have the sun 93 million miles out there, right? If the, if the sun disappears, in fact, the sun makes the planet Earth an open system. In fact, it's open not just to sunlight, but it's open to the uh, moon wiggling around it. it. It's open to asteroids falling on it. It's open to losing hydrogen and then regathering hydrogen. That's a very interesting thing is, is that hydrogen doesn't stay on the planet Earth. It goes off into outer space and then sometimes outer space hydrogen comes back in the form of the water that's coming in comets and all kinds of other things like that and so the we're, earth we're actually really, projected we're actually projected to lo to lose all helium like we're going to run out of helium like it's projected within uh i forgot the exact time but relatively soon because helium is just leaving when people make balloons and stuff mm -hmm. it doesn't come back doesn't come back exactly. You we're know gonna, why? Because the, because the helium molecules are so small that they go right through the rubber membrane of a um, of a balloon. That's why the balloons lose their helium, and off it goes under the wild blue yonder, and then off it goes even past the wild blue yonder. Off it goes. Okay. So this whole idea is that the uh, the planet Earth is an open system. Without the sunlight, the whole thing would fall apart and die. We need the sun. With the sun and the energy of the sun, we can actually eventually replace the helium by manufacturing it. We know how to do that. And, um, the, uh, the Germans were experimenting with doing that in World War II. Because they could, because the Germans couldn't get any helium, the Americans and English and whatnot wouldn't let them have any. So uh, it's not very efficient. It's not a good idea to do it that way, but we already know how to make helium. 
But that's a digression. Let's get back to the point of that samadhi then in the Buddha's context uh, has that very important quality of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because that's where the self actually comes from. The self is, um, let us say, one of the things that you, with all of your constituent components, from beard to eyeglasses to the shirt you're wearing to all of the uh, molecules in the blood and everything like that come together, and you're a kind of an open system, but that system has a value to it that it didn't have if your clothes were six years or six miles from here this uh, let us say what skin was left on your right hand was uh in a museum in this country and your head was over there someplace and all of that when you're spread out you don't have the functionality in fact we can call that death but when you bring all of that stuff together you've got something that's greater than the sum of the parts. What you have, for example, the bicycle, is you've got transportation. When you bring all the parts of the chariot together, then you, uh, then the chariot then can be hooked to a horse and you've got transportation. When we see it that way, now we can begin to understand how to use the word samati because it makes something new. One last example, an alarm clock, an old-fashioned alarm clock. We found it in the attic. It was dirty. It was broken. Um, it wouldn't work, but we carefully took it apart, cleaned every gear, oiled all of the jewels, and put it back together correctly, and now the clock will function because it's put together correctly. So this is what we mean by um, samati is when things are together and we use this in the sense of uh, the Eightfold Noble Path of uh, noble uh, right samati or sama area samati. What that actually means is that the mind is unified, it's whole, it's functioning as opposed to someone who was full of doubt or someone who was saying, I can't do it. I don't know how. Right. And so the mind for that or when we're lying to someone, that means that the mind is not whole. It's not unified. We're a crowd inside. Basically, the crowd is between the argument between the parent adult, uh, excuse me, the parent ego state and the child ego state, which means the natural part of us, plus all of the rites, rules, rituals, and everything else that we've made. And so we go around telling ourselves what to do, and then we don't want to do it. There's no samadhi in there. The samadhi means that we're unified in the mind. There's another use for the word samadhi, which actually brings that unification of mind, and that is when we talk about the first jhana as being samadhi. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the first uh, jhana, the term, what they think of is concentration, focus, 
But it doesn't mean that at all. What it means instead is bringing the constituent components, the factors of the first samati or the first um, uh, jhana together. So let's look at those for just a moment. The first one, the most important one, the one by the way that Western Buddhism, because they get all concentrated in everything, they forget the most important thing in this teaching. Okay, this is actually built into the Eightfold Noble Path as well as Anapanasati, and that is, is that we have to take the right effort to remove the hindrances from the mind. What are hindrances? By their very definition of the word hindrance is anything that's going to prevent or hinder you from being organized. It's going to prevent and um, um, curtail your ability to think straight. It's going to hinder your ability to feel the way you want to feel. And so the first thing that we have to do, and by the way, I'm going at using it the word with the uh, with the Satipatthana, so we can also say that the hindrances will prevent the body from being comfortable and relaxed because we get uptight when we're thinking about uh, in the form of hindrances of work that I've got to do and places that I've got to go, et cetera, right like that. So the first thing that we have to remove is the hindrances. That's one of the items on the, uh, uh, by the way, it depends upon which sutta you're reading, is that the first jhana either has five or six constituent components that have to be brought together. You could say that in fact the five would be used and said correctly because the sixth one will tag along naturally. And what is that sixth item is that the body is relaxed. So anything that you're doing that's a hindrance to the mind is also going to be a hindrance to the body. But when you remove the hindrances, then the body can relax. The next item is, is that we be begin then to get the mind organized so that we can begin to feel the way that we want to feel. And that's the, the two items of that would be sukha. Now, the word sukha in the Pali means exactly opposite of the word dukkha. This is an important point. The word sukha is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. So when you are in uh, hindrances, you're in a state of dissatisfaction. When you remove the hindrances and have only wholesome things to say, then we can generate this feeling of sukha, which translates into the word satisfaction. Now, satisfaction has several components to it. One is, is that we have to feel safe and secure. If we feel unsafe, there's no satisfaction there. So when we feel safe and secure and comfortable, then we can bring on the satisfaction. Safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied is actually a good working definition of the word samadhi. And by the way, the lexicon got that one right. <laughs> you can look up at the dictionary of the Pali, and that one they've got right. Sukha means to be free from the hindrances, free from all um, dangers, 
so that you feel safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. When we do this over and over and over again, the body gets comfortable, the hindrances are gone, and then something else is added to the mix, and that is, is that by doing this over and over again, there's your concentration now. <laughs> when we do this over and over and over again, we begin to get good at it, and we begin to recognize that we're getting good at it, and we begin to feel successful. This successful component is the pity. It's the wow. It's I've got it. It's goodness gracious, how good can this be? That's that kind of feeling that we that we bring together along with the feeling of safe, secure, and satisfied. So now we feel safe, secure, satisfied, the body is relaxed, and we are in that kind of a wow state. Now, this is a normal kind of state that people are in. Before I ever got into meditation, I recognized this state. It can happen, the places that it happened to me was one at a, at a big dam and canyon somewhere in Virginia. I've forgotten where it was. The next one was at the Grand Canyon, these vistas. Uh, the, the third one was uh, when I was on top of the Empire State Building looking down at the cars that were almost microscopic because we were so far below, okay? So when you get into these vista kind of places, we get into a state of awe, a state of wonder, a state of magnificence. I imagine that this is exactly the kind of feeling that the astronauts have when they get up above the world, when they're really above it all, they go into this wow mentality, all right? This wowness is actually something that we're going to practice and cultivate so that you can get into that state of, wow, this is really, really wonderful. This is magnificent. And we can do that because we know how to do it. And we don't have to spend all of that money to go to the Grand Canyon to feel that way. But that's exactly why people go to the Grand Canyon is so they can look out on that vista and feel wonderful. Why else would people go to the Grand Canyon? Other than that, it's just a big ditch, and now it's a muddy ditch <laughs> because of the lack of water. But it does not take away, even though the water has gone down and they've got a lot of water problems, that does not stop that feeling of wonder and magnificence of how large things are. So if we continue to do this, this is where we can bring in that we can apply the mind to this state. We apply the mind to removing the hindrance. We apply the mind to talking ourselves through wholesome thoughts into feeling safe, secure, comfortable. And then we recognize that we can do this and that brings on that sense of awe. So the applied mind, but then the next one is sustained. We have to apply the mind and keep applying it and keep applying it and keep applying it. And so in this regard, back to that definition of um, concentration, this is the place where it comes to. But this is not how we use the word concentration in Buddhism, but this is how we can use it correctly. And that is that we keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back to this state of awe, this state of wonder, this state of everything is okay, a profound sense of satisfaction. 
where you get to the point that everything is enough and then it'll slide back into not enough. And so we have to bring it back again into enough. And then we slide after I want something new. I, this is not good enough. And then I bring it back that in fact, one of the most common questions that I'm asked uh, is, well, now that I feel good, what do I do next? What do I do next means that we're not satisfied yet with what we're doing now. If we really get satisfied with what we're doing now, we want to stay there. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to ask questions like what's next. We we have the, the statement, this is it. This is it. This is good enough. This is fine. OK, so this is how we bring those jhana factors together into a state of samadhi that has number one, removal of the hindrances. Number two, the development of feeling satisfied. Then the development of a feeling of that wow sensation. This is magnificent. This is wonderful. And then we add the applied. We have to keep applying the mind to this and then over and over and over again and sustain it. So applied and sustained thought on top of uh, the feeling of sukha and pity plus the removal of the hindrances, those are the five factors with the sixth one being that the body is also relaxed. And now we have the first jhana. We've got all the constituent components that are brought together. No real concentration anywhere in there in the sense of furring our brows and not paying attention. So this is an important point because a lot of the students in meditation think that they're supposed to be concentrated which means that they're going to actually remove important constituent components because they've got the idea that they're they're trying to remove that's another uh definition of the word concentration is to remove all the unimportant stuff and have only the important things if this is an example uh, that you probably use the most of concentration and that the example that I would use is frozen concentrated orange juice so that we also have condensed or concentrated milk. We also have other foods that they do that. In fact, where does corn oil come from is squeezing the bejesus out of corn until the oil comes out of it, right? And so that's what we do is that we concentrate the um, uh, the corn and the byproduct is the corn oil. I'd rather have the corn itself than the corn oil. What about you? I think I'd rather have my corn not being mashed to pieces just to get the oil out of it. So if we understand concentration uh, this way as a re repetition, then we don't make the mistakes that most meditators make when they use the word concentration. They think that that means that I've got to focus and keep focusing and keep looking and get tighter and tighter and tighter. But in fact, we make our minds something like frozen concentrated orange juice. By concentrating. Right? Well, nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice now, do they? I mean, have you ever seen this stuff? It actually is bittersweet. It's overly sweet and it's really, really bitter. 
Nobody likes to drink frozen concentrated orange juice. What do we do with it when we want to drink it? We make it samati again by putting the water back in it that was taken out in the first place. We, we put the water back in it. So here we're, what we're trying to do is, is that we're actually doing the same thing in a way is, is that we have, in fact, ruined our lives. Each one of us has ruined our own life by concentrating too much on the wrong things. And that what we're actually now practicing is to unconcentrate and make things whole again. Now, here's an example of that. This is one of my favorites. The Zen master has a Zen stick and he walks around the Zendo hitting people with that Zen stick on their right shoulder. Why? Or a better question to, to ask is, who does he hit, David? Who does the Zen master hit with his Zen stick? You got your microphone muted. It's pretty noisy there. Uh, sorry, I just missed what you said in the last 10 seconds. Uh, Bunte just showed up and uh, greeted me here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, my question was, who does the Zen master hit? We'll let you deal with your, uh, uh, your own Zen master there and let somebody else. Alex. Who do you think the Zen master hits with his Zen stick and why? He's gone. How about you, Victor? Who does the Zen master hit with his stick and why? Uh, I already know the answer because uh, you talked about that mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. last mm -hmm. 101. <laughs> All so. right. So you know the answer. I think so. I, I know that Scott and Ron knew. <laughs> and, and so does I'm picking on the guys who don't know, but you know. All right. So go right ahead. Who does the Zen master hit with his Zen stick and why? The, okay, maybe I only know the first the first one, but it's the person that does not notice the the teacher coming. But why? I think it's just because the person is just too concentrated, it's just not really just paying attention to like their surroundings. So yeah. yes, exactly. That that people uh, then in fact you've heard the word deep in the sense of meditation. Then, in fact, Goenka uses the word the same way he uses the word work. You've got to work. Okay. And that um, uh, when we have a deep meditation, what that actually means is that possibly the brain's not getting all the oxygen that it really could use. It's gotten dull. It's gotten sleepy. It's gotten dreamy. But in fact, this is the state that the students want to get in so that they can have past life experiences. What that means is they've gotten themselves into a dreamy state and they dream something. And then they come out of that dream state and try to interpret the dream by, oh, well, the clothes looked weird, so it must be a past life. Right? So we're, we're looking for something completely different. 
than that. This is possibly the reason why over the centuries we've gotten the idea that that there are no more enlightened beings. I've heard that. In fact, in the 1980s, that was standard literature in the Western Buddhist section was that there hadn't been enlightened beings in hundreds of years. Well, basically what that means is we don't have a clue about what the word enlightenment means. But it also has to do with the fact that all the students in that time were trying to get that enlightenment by concentrating, by working, by, by going into it deeply. Okay, and so the Zen master is going to hit anyone who is not paying attention, who is not awake. But in fact, this is what the word bode means. Bodhi is the word to become awake, and it's closely associated with the word uh, sati, which means to wake up, to remember, to look at what we're doing. Now, the um, the the whole body has a lot of sensory inputs. We not only receive light from the eyes, but we can receive light from our skin. We know it. I mean, you can hang your car, your your arm out the window of the car, and get and the uh, the arm gets sunlight. How many of you have ever tanned your arm just by riding in a car with your arm hanging out the window? They don't let people hang out their 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 the window. I mean, they don't let their kids hang their the wind their arm out the window of the car anymore. It's something a little bit dangerous. But back in the old days, you could put your elbow up. They've also got air conditioning now. That's the worst thing that they could do to a car is put air conditioning in it. I mean, we we've, we've got you know four windows. <laughs> Let's use that kind of air. <clears throat> but anyway, the body then receives the sunlight. It's not just light that we use with our eyes, but it comes from all over the body. And yet we cover up the body to prevent it from having the sunlight, the natural uh, life that we could live, because we've got all these social conventions of thou should must you must wear clothes even when you don't need them and so um <clears throat> if we can understand then that the whole body is a receptor it receives input we receive huge amounts of input through the eyes but we receive even more from the body itself the entire body has neurons on it that are collected just like the cones and the rods and the eyes so that there's a huge amount of receptive information that comes in and we don't pay much attention to it because we're thinking about something but when we begin to open to our senses and stop processing so much and start looking at the way things really are in this present moment now we're not concentrated at all the word concentration actually means that we're going to ignore all of this beautiful, marvelous uh, sensory input that's coming in and go someplace into the mind and get really, really tight. And we're doing exactly the opposite of that. We're coming out of the mind. We're coming out of the tightness and getting into a loose, receptive state of mind to where we can receive let us say those those three things that valley that I saw in and uh, uh, Virginia or the Grand Canyon. 
how are you going to get that sense of wonder if you're just uh, thinking about the Grand Canyon? No, you've got to receive that Grand Canyon and all of its wonder. You've got to receive it that way. You've got to be there for it. That is not a matter of even looking at a photograph. In fact, the joke is, is that everybody goes to the Grand Canyon and what do they do? They spend 90% of their time getting their camera out, getting a good angle and taking a photo. And while they're using that camera all of that time, how do they feel? They feel uptight. They feel like they're in the future. They're wanting to get a good shot. They're in a state of ordinary existence to where someone else who is wise will put that camera down and look at that vista and go into that state of awe. All right. So who's the one who is concentrating? The one who is uh, taking the photos? Yeah, he's the one who's concentrating because he's trying to get those photos done. And he's missing out on the entire thing because he's concentrating on the wrong stuff rather than being there for the reality. Now, that kind of uh, uh, feeling of the wonder of awe is also part of the reason why people come to the islands. An island will give you also that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that sense of how can these four... We've got, we've got mountains just right up the road here that are like 400 meters. They're enormous hills. And they're just right here. I mean, it's, un it's unbelievable the magic that we will understand, the, the real magic of how complicated and how marvelous the planet Earth actually is. If we would basically come out of our imaginations about the planet Earth and go look, go experience, go feel, go stand on that precipice and look straight down five, six hundred meters straight down. And you'll get that. I mean, your body starts to tangle. Just by looking, I mean, the whole you become vibrantly alive because you're taking in these kind of vistas. So we can do that without actually having to go to the island or actually having to go to the uh, tall building or to go to the um, uh, Grand Canyon that we can actually sit here and open our senses to how marvelous this room is. What Bo put, by the way, is a really marvelous place. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. You could go into a state of awe and wonder just by seeing how big those trees are and how nice the air is and everything like this by taking it in. But if you sit in the meditation hall and concentrate, you'll miss a whole lot. So does anybody have any questions about this? Victor, do you have something to say? Yeah, um, I was wondering, like, okay, so we're not supposed to concentrate and just, just hammer our, our minds down into like stability. I was wondering when you have an agitated mind in the beginning, how, especially in the beginning of meditation, um, how do you just actually just start to attain that, try to attain that state without just 
focusing and concentrating too much you know like how do you calm the mind down without just hammering it down <laughs> okay one of the things that you're asking is um why am i in such a hurry that in fact that's the reason why people want to concentrate because they think that if they can lighten their load by throwing all the good stuff out then they can get someplace quickly right the answer to that is you basically, from your very first moment of practice, there's still no place to go and nothing to do. And all we have to do is to remember that. That's the sati, to come back and to be here now. And when the mind wanders away, never mind, come back to this present moment. As Goenka talks about it, never mind, start again. When the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the breath is something that we're doing right here, right now. Your breathing is marvelous. It's keeping you alive. Learn to appreciate how marvelous the breath is, how delicious this in-breath is. If you don't think that this in-breath is delicious, wait three minutes and then breathe in and see. But in fact, it will be quite delicious, quite marvelous. All right. Well, if it was marvelous after three minutes, then why can't it be marvelous after 15 seconds or 10 seconds? Okay, this is the whole idea then is, is that we need to come out of our thinking, but we can't force our way out of it. We just remember that it's easier to do nothing at all and enjoy the input rather than actually doing something. That in fact, the, uh, the issue is perception. Now, what do we mean by the word perception? Well, we take sensory input, let us say through the eyes, but then the human mind has gotten into the thing that we have to understand everything. It might be dangerous. And so we want to understand everything. Well, while we're processing stuff in order to understand it, we're not taking any more sensory input. We're not taking any sensory input when we're trying to figure out what's going on. We're off into our uh, wonderland of a mind, and sometimes we just stay there rather than keep coming back to reality. So this is what the practice is, is to remember to get real to remember to come back to uh, reality, to remember to stop processing the input data and start enjoying it instead. That that's one of that points about the uh, standing in the Grand Canyon. When you're in that sense of state of awe, you're not thinking much. You're looking, you're taking in data. That's what gives us that sense of awe, not trying to figure something out. And we spend our whole lives trying to figure something out. That figuring, you could say, then that's the concentration to where the real practice is the practice of opening up, not closing down. And we open to the inputs, we open to the ears, we open to the smells. That in fact, did you know that when you're breathing in, that you can actually detect the air has smell? What does your air smell like? Well, it depends upon what's in the air, basically. But uh, every air molecule or every uh, breath that you take, etc., 
will have something else besides just carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and oxygen in it. And in fact, the whole dog's world is all about those chemicals that are in the air, and dogs pay a great deal of attention to how the, the air smells. That's what their whole existence is all about. And in fact, dogs are not very visually oriented. Humans are very visually oriented. That's why we see a girl that's half-dressed down the street. We get sexually excited. The dogs, they don't do that. A dog is a dog until you can shove your nose up its butt. And then things get interesting. <laughs> why? Because they like those smells. But us humans, we don't pay much attention to the smelling. And because it, we've lost that ability. So you can actually wake up your sense of smell by beginning to smell the air that you're breathing. Pay attention to how it smells. Pay attention to the temperature. Pay attention to all of the various components of this life-giving force that we're taking in as real information. In other words, this is actually... Medit the practice of Anapanasati is an actual, is an active discovery of reality. It's an open, active research of taking in data, not doing too much data processing, just receiving data, taking it in and experiencing it. And this is what we mean by then samadhi which is exactly opposite of what mostly we think of as concentration. That's why so many people in the practice of uh, Anapanasati don't get out of their practice what they want because they're trying to concentrate and think their way into enlightenment as opposed to stopping all of that stuff and just be light and just be receptive. At any time that you are light, don't not have a thought in the world. Don't all you're doing is just experiencing. That's enlightenment. You're not carrying anything around. That gives you a kind of a lightness. That gives us that sense of awe, that sense of wonder. And so this oh. is where you you like that, Victor, huh? Yeah, that's perfect. That was a beautiful explanation. <laughs> really appreciate it. Well, this is the part that is often missed within Western Buddhism because we've got this a wrong idea about what is concentration. But when we recognize that the kid, remember the story that I told about the kid who um, could hear his dad walking down the hall? Okay, that's it. He was able to save his butt because he heard his dad walking down the hall. Ten years later, he wasn't able to save his butt because he wasn't paying attention to his dad walking down the hall. He was concentrated. Concentration is dangerous. If you get concentrated on a uh, Big Mac while you're driving your car, you're going to have some trouble. You might have an accident. That in fact, if you're going to concentrate while you're driving, concentrate on driving. <laughs> concentrate on the road. Look at where you're going. Be open and stay with it. Remember to keep looking. But that's what causes automobile accidents is the fact that people are thinking about something. Even road rage. 
is because people are not watching where they're going. They're thinking about what they want to do. They're thinking about getting back at the other driver or any of that kind of stuff. But when we're actually driving, we need to pay attention to where we're going. And then when we're in meditation, guess what? Same thing. We need to pay attention to where we're going. All right, you got a question. Uh, yes, about uh, concentration in action. So when you're driving or doing something, um, what's the, the, the balance to to do without doing, you know, like staying relaxed and enjoying while you're doing uh, something that uh, usually you would do because you want something, you know, so you would be concentrated in a way like uh, carried away toward your goal. Uh, how do you mind the two? Because in retreat, in retreat, it's very easy to do nothing and relax because there is nothing to do. But in actual life, I find it a bit uh, more challenging for me. And yeah. Well, that's a good point. You see, this is why the Buddha recommended in the first place is to get away from it all, to get in the seclusion. We want to go someplace to where there's not a lot of sensory input so that we can learn to handle a little bit of sensory input rather than getting immediately overwhelmed. And so we want to practice in seclusion. That uh, in fact, uh, practicing in the dark with the eyes open is a good practice, good way to do it, as opposed to closing the eyes in daylight, to just get into a darkened place and um, uh, kind of let the eyes cast downward. But when we're out in the world, we need to use those eyes to watch where we're going, to watch the road, to pay attention. Also, to listen. This is why they put horns on cars, so people can listen to them. And yet people don't listen. They don't use their, their horns to, for traffic. They use their horns for um, uh, what? Uh, protesting and, and making a political statement or whatever like that, rather than actually using the horns for th their actual use. And and here's the point about that, then, that the drivers who are out using their horns for political reasons are not really paying attention to the road. They're dangerous. They're probably more dangerous than your average driver who is thinking about their hamburgers or trying to get the kids to behave in the backseat or whatever they're doing that humans are not very good drivers simply because they're not taught to pay attention. That I remember uh, when I learned to drive, you know, you've got clutches and you've got gas pedals and you've got gear shifts and you've got um, uh, uh, turn signals and you've got lights and you've got all of this kind of stuff and they think that after you learn to manipulate all of that stuff, that's all you need to drive. No. What we need to drive is to watch where we're going. And kids are notorious at not watching where they're going. That's why the kids are working so many accidents. is because they don't watch where they're going because they think all they have to do is manipulate the machine. And now I can talk to my friends or um, uh, do anything. And they wind up having a lot of traffic accidents because they're not watching where they're going. Well, guess what? You could say that that's, in fact, all of Dukkha. No matter what the problem is, no matter the situation, 
if you're not watching what's going on, you're going to crash. The example that I use with that, by the way, is the farmer. He's got to go all the way on the other side of the pasture where the cows are. If he keeps his eye on the cows and starts watching where the cows are and so that he can manage to, to get there when they arrive at where they're going, he's going to be covered in cow shit because he's not watching where he's going. He's intending to think about the destination rather than every step. But a good farmer, even though he's wearing uh, uh, hip boots or uh, waders or uh, uh, at least knee-high boots, he's still going to watch every step. But that's one of the beautiful things that I learned about the Native American Indians. Hello, Robert. Is, is that they only wore moccasins. They wore very, very thin shoes, or uh, if at all. A lot of them would go barefoot, which meant that they had to watch where they were going. So that's one of the things that the Buddha would recommend also, is to spend a whole lot of time barefoot, especially when you're out walking. Why? Because that's a meditation. You've got to watch where you're going. You've got to be here now. You can't go walking through the brambles or walking through those big, heavy rocks. So you can't walk out on the, uh, the highway where the sun's been beating down. It's too hot. And so you have to plan carefully. You have to look at where you're going. This is one of the reasons why walking meditation is so valuable, but not necessarily in shoes, but going barefoot. That'll help a lot to watch where you're going. It's too bad that people can't drive their, their cars barefoot. <laughs> but I don't think that that would help them watch the road so much, driving their car barefoot. But walking barefoot will help you watch where you're going. And this is what it's really all about, is dukkha. Dukkha rota comes from watching where you're going because dukkha will come in this present moment. It comes. Can you see it in time to get out of its way? That's really what the practice is all about. And this goes back to the point about concentration, that when you are concentrating, you're not watching where you're going. Concentration is really dangerous. It's not an art to be developed. What's the art that's to be developed or the skill to be developed is the skill of being here now, to pay attention, to see what's going on. And I'm, I'm actually, now that, that we've, we've uh, talked about this, it's kind of hard to understand how those Christian translators could have gotten the word samadhi translated so wrongly. Especially that's in, in the suttas. I think it, uh, there's a really good example of this in the Mahayana Sutta uh, where the uh, yurt is used as the example of samadhi. Uh, you may know what a yurt is. It's a tent. And the tent has a ridge pole, and then it's got side poles to it. The same thing is true about the uh, Native American wigwam or teepee, to where it is samati. It's got where all the poles are tied together close to the top. That's your samati point, where everything comes together to give stability. Imagine that you had a wigwam or a tent that had, let, let us say, eight or ten poles but you didn't bother to tie them together at the top. 
How long is that tent going to stay up? Probably not very long. But if you tie it up and tie things off and get things collected together at that fulcrum or at that top point, then we've got a we've got a tent or we've got a yurt. We've got a teepee. Robert, your motorcycle is very loud. Oh, I don't have a motorcycle, but <laughs> um, anyhow, um, I was thinking about concentrate, you know, con the term concentrate. So it reminds me of concentrate juice. And I just looked up the literal definition of concentrate juice, which is juice from which uh, most of the water has been e extracted from the fruit. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can look at concentrate as where things are being removed or as where things are being brought together you know mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting it has both of those meanings you can say everything's together so it's concentrated or everything's removed so you're now concentrating i don't think anybody uses the term concentration by bringing things together i think that that's in fact the wrong translation that's why samati should not be translated as concentration because i don't think does anybody use the word concentration in the sense of bringing everything together well, with concentrate juice, it's the juice where all the fruit is together and the water is gone. Like this orange juice is from concentrate. That's how they, they, they call it. Right. But as I said before you call, nobody drinks the concentrated. We want to put the water back in to make it samati. Hmm. We want to make that word, we want to make it whole again. We want to add the things, the constituent components back into it. Um, you could use, in fact, you can use the word concentration in the sense of removal of the hindrances. Just like you remove the water, so you remove the hindrances. That's the form of that kind of concentration so that we don't have anything to hinder left. We've removed it. Right, that's a via negativa. Mm hmm So, maybe I was wrong about the word concentration. Maybe we can use it to uh, mean to, um, to add back in that which was needed. To make it whole. Going back to the, um, uh, the issue of the, um, uh, um, systems general systems theory is, is that if there's anything missing like a like one of the gears out of that clock clock's not going to function correctly it needs all of its gears but yeah, also but, but, uh, go ahead i don't know but but uh, I, I like the explanation because uh i was usually thinking about like the, the the wrong definition just the, the just hammering it down until you get it right so mm -hmm. i think it was it was very good to just to clear that out and to actually explain samati actually that was a beautiful explanation when you talked about having two state states of mind that just suddenly just converge into the same direction and then you find that piece that like oh my god now just i don't have like an internal battle going on so that was that was that was pretty good 
Right. That we take we're taking that internal fight, that internal battle that I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And removing that from the uh, from the reality of the situation, because the reality of the situation in this moment, you don't have to do anything. Just experience just to be here. Use your sensory input. But we have, since our schools have taught us the way that we do, um, we wind up thinking that there's something to do all the time. I mean, you probably have experienced that in the sense that you all of a sudden have a tiny little panic, but it's a panic. A tiny little panic. Oh, well, what have I got to do? Oh, no, what am I missing? What's my to-do list? Do I have everything on the to-do list that needs to be on the to-do list? Have I forgotten something, right? How many of you experience this every day? Sometimes day in and day out, hour in and hour out. Oh, no, what have I got to do? The answer to that is look at what you're doing. You're making yourself into a state of panic that you don't need to be in. That you can relax and say, oh, there's nothing left to do. I can, at least for right now, enjoy this moment. Let me be here now with all the sensory input and just enjoy. All right, you got your hand up. Yes, we also have to be careful not to to do, stop doing, like to try to <laughs> to do it too much as well, because that's uh, also a trap I found, trying too hard to, to stop, you know. Okay. Can you say a little more about that? Um, meaning uh, if you really uh, uh, do the practice and think about it, it becomes also something you must do, right? Uh, I mean, it, if you uh, try to stop, you're actually doing something in a way. So that can bring some dukkha too, I found. Mm -hmm. Maybe that, but yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that panic that I was talking about, that's dukkha. That we yeah. go into a state of dissatisfaction because we think that there's got to be something to be done. And really, Right now, I mean, if we, we actually sat down saying uh, for the next five or ten minutes, I'm going to practice Anapanasati, and three minutes into it, we get the idea, oh, I've got to go do this, and oh, I've got to go do that, and oh, that's a marvelous, wonderful idea. Can I sit here long enough to re and, and remember it so that when I get up, I can go write it down, or should I go write it down right now? I mean, it's such a marvelous idea. And that marvelous idea that we've had then prevents us from being in the here now because we thought that that was important. To where in fact, guess what? Here's a question for you. Which is more important, writing down your good idea or breathing? If you recognize that breathing is more important than writing something down, then we can say, well, we can add one more thing to that Then not only breathing, but actually paying attention to the breath and enjoying the breath. That's more important than writing something down. But if you remembered it now, you can remember it later. If you thought of it now, you can think of it later. 
and recognizing that you can begin to trust yourself. But the better thing to do is begin to live life enjoyably. Uh, also, if it's a really good idea, it'll probably come back. Well, that's what I just said. You know, right. Like, it'll come back. If yeah, it's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> and if it wasn't such a good idea, then it's forgettable anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> well, let me hear from Alex. Alex, are you still on with us? Alex R? Uh, yes, uh, still, oh, good. still listening. All right, good. Do you have any comments or anything to say or any questions? Um, not yet. Maybe next time or in the future. All right. Well, it would be okay with me if you call me sometime and we can uh, basically talk about uh, basic practice. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, all right. Keyshawn, you got your hand up. Good to see you, friend. Hey, Dom, Rada, good to see you, too. Um, I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about and uh, just discuss one by one as they occur. And uh, kind of... Um, That's an excellent point to add to this. One, Whatever is happening, it happens one by one in this new moment. This season. new moment is new, a new moment. This season is a new season. Everything is new. If we uh, keep looking uh, at, go ahead. Uh, the, the seizing, talk, talk about the seizing as well of, of, the, of uh, what arises falling on. All right, to grasp the object, to really look at it or take, to take it in, to seize the moment, to seize the... Um, uh, to put some effort into the reality of the moment. Thank you for mentioning that, um, uh, Keyshawn. To really be here for it, to take this moment in. Because otherwise, when we see something new, one by one as they occur, when we take something in, we'll compare it to what we already know. And so that starts up that uh, perceiving and uh, understanding part of the complex that once we get it started, it may not stop. So we have to remember that even if you do think of something that never mind, start again, come back to the present moment and that things are happening one by one. Every moment is a new moment. What's happening now? Okay, one by one as they occur, whatever is happening, bring that up. Because it can be a thought that came up. All right, so I see the thought. I can change that thought into something wholesome if it's not wholesome. One by one as they occur, this new breath. One by one we take a new breath. One by one as they occur. And people will ask, well, what, what kind of meditation object should I take? And the answer to that is... The one that's happening. The one that's occurring. That's what we take as an object of meditation. So as we're breathing in, we take the breath as an object. 
When we breathe out, we take the out-breath as an object. When we hear something, we note it. We take that as an object. When we see something, we note it. We take it as an object. When fear comes, we note it. We take it as an object, and then we change it. How do we change it? By taking another deep breath. And then we take that as an object, and we note that. So we keep moving from object to object. That's another thing that about concentration. Concentration has the quality of hanging on to one object, no matter how inappropriate it is. That when we take one object, back to the uh, uh, the, the point about the whack-a-mole, we've got 16 of them there. Which one do we hit? The one that's coming up. <laughs> That's the one that we pay attention to. Everything happens one by one as it occurs. And like we hit that whack-a-mole with the little hammer, we seize it. We grab it. We take a hold of it. We, we bring it in as input. And so this is what uh, Keyshawn was getting at, is one by one as, as they occur, we seize that object. And we have uh, four groups of objects. We have the body, including the seeing and the hearing and the touch and the breathing and the uh, tensions in the body and the relaxation. Then, in fact, the body, your body, determines where you are, not what's in your mind. If, you're, if the body is sitting in the car, then the body is in the car. You're in the car. But many times people think that who they are is where their mind is rather than where their body is. And the whole quality of this practice is to be here now means to be where the body is and where the body can take in data, take in sensory input. And what sensory input? Whatever is occurring in this moment, one by one as they occur, pay attention to it. So I'll throw in here uh, folks like uh, Achan Po and skilled meditators, arahats, those kind of guys, it's really hard to sneak up on them. Ordinary people get concentrating on doing the dishes. You can sneak right up on them, put your face, I mean, their, their, their face is right here, and you come up right here, and they, where did you come from? That in fact is... This is the uh, uh, the idea that monks can fly is because they walk into rooms silently enough that people who are concentrated on something, they don't know that you're there. I love that about my family is that they're so easy to sneak up on. Great big point of fun. Another one was uh, this happens on a regular basis. I've watched it now over the past five years It's happened at least. 10 times and that is that the birds will get lost they'll fly into the house and then they'll fly into the bedroom they'll make one circle and go back out of the room and if you're not in that room with them then you'll miss the fact that the bird has been in the room with you and regularly kitty and tam miss the fact that a bird just flew in flew around and flew out why? Because they're either deep in their cell phone or in conversation or whatever like that. And so this is a, an issue of where uh, Keyshawn is talking about one by one as they occur. Because there's a whole lot of stuff happening that you'll miss.
And so the whole practice then about Apanasati is being able to wake up and be in the present moment. And we need to practice that because we have gotten into a habit of being aware of what's between the ears rather than being aware of uh, where the ears are. And so this is the whole quality of this concentration where Kishan is getting right at it when he says one by one as they occur, whatever is occurring, be there for it, grab it, this breath, this sight, this sound, this reality, thoughts about it, not so much. Because while we're thinking about this, the, the, let us say that one by one something occurred. We saw it, and then we start thinking about it. Well, the next one by one as they occur, the next thing that occurs, we miss that one because we were too busy thinking about the first one. But if we are there for it, this is, this is uh, in, in warfare, they often have guard duty where guards have to stand around. If that guard is watching, he's doing his job. If he's in conversation with another guard, neither one of them are doing their job because they're not watching. They're in a conversation. They're talking. They're thinking. They're not in, in the present moment. And so when we talk about using the word guard to guard the breath, to guard the mind, to guard our feelings, what that means is to be aware of it. One by one as they occur, whatever it is that happens, grab it. Be there for it. Take it in deeply. So thank you, Keyshawn, for making that point. Anybody else got any points that they would like to make or anything to add? Any questions? All right, guys. Well, I think that we've had enough of this one. So we'll see you later. Robert, I'm really glad to see you. Let's take a moment. How's your kid? He's great. Everyone's great. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> that's yeah. good. To hear. Congrats, Robert. Yeah, congratulations, so much, Papa. <laughs> Thank you. No, I would bring him on, but he's sleeping right now. <laughs> Another time. Another time. All right. Yeah, but he, he's doing great. He's just a wonderful little bundle of love. Well, this has been a really great talk. I, I really appreciate David. David, did you get out of this talk what you were hoping to get out of it? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, that was very comprehensive. Very comprehensive. I think I might have to go back and listen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay. Well, does anybody have anything else to say? If not, then we'll finish this off. Guys, this has been a great talk. I haven't been well concentrated, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh uh, Don Morado, I want to call you to give you a little update All right. uh, on something. So maybe after this. Yeah, sure. give me 10, 15 sure. minutes and then call. All right. Okay, great. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Take All care. right. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. That was great.
Ciao. Ciao.